In the days since the Uvalde school shooting, there's this one video I can't get out of my head. It's not the video of desperate parents outside the school building begging police officers to rush inside and save their kids. And it's not the video of Governor Greg Abbott being booed as he laid flowers outside of Robb Elementary School. It's a video from before all that, made by the manufacturer of one of the weapons the shooter used. This is a promotional video. It shows you how the DDM-4 semi-automatic rifle, made by Daniel Defense, works. This lightweight, modular rifle would make a perfect addition to anybody's gun safe. It comes standard with a 16-inch... It was striking to me because, like, it's scored with this kind of intense rock music. A guy comes on and he, he sort of demonstrates all the features of the gun. And then he's, he's running around shooting as if he was in urban warfare. He's at a gun range. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the modern gun manif- uh, marketing campaign, right? Todd Frankel's watched a lot of videos like this. He's a reporter over at the Washington Post. The specialty is the business of gun manufacturing. You know, the sort of uh, gentleman farmer with his shotgun slung over his shoulder shooting ducks, that doesn't really sell many guns. After a shooting, a video like this one may look unseemly. But Todd says that's only if you haven't been paying attention. These promotional videos are just as routine as the thoughts and prayers Daniel Defense offered up after realizing their rifle had been used to murder schoolchildren. You pointed out that the wording in the thoughts and prayers message that Daniel Defense released after Uvalde, it was almost exactly the same as the wording the company used after their weapons were used in a Las Vegas mass shooting that killed 58 people in 2017. Yeah, no, there's sort of a Groundhog's Day quality to all this. Um, And they just follow the same playbook and no variation. And again, that's also how the other gun companies react each time, too. Daniel Defense was supposed to show up at the National Rifle Association convention a few days after the shooting, but they didn't. Do you think that means the company's gone to ground in some way? Oh, temporarily, sure. But I don't see this as any sort of broader retreat on their part. Today on the show, their products are used to kill. So why doesn't a gun manufacturer like Daniel Defense seem eager to do much about it? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Can you just introduce me to Daniel Defense and the people who run it? It's a relatively new manufacturer, right? Yeah. Yeah, they are part of this explosion in gun companies we've seen nationwide after the assault weapons ban was repealed in 2004. I didn't know there was an explosion of gun companies after the assault weapons ban was lifted. Yeah, I mean, you know, after that ban was lifted, 
a lot of room for innovation, right? There's an entirely new product line that can be introduced and sold to people. This, this semi-automatic rifle that looks like it came from the military. Um, and so all these smaller gun manufacturers rushed in to fill this space. Daniel Defense was started by, by Marty Daniels, named for him. He's a, a guy who lives outside Savannah, Georgia. And he started his company in 2001. Uh, actually, the story goes, my, my golf game was so bad that I, that I gave it up and took up shooting as a hobby. Uh, He's an engineer. He, he went to engineering school and he was in like much more bland businesses before that, like, you know, windows and overhead doors and fireplaces. And, and he got into guns. He was a, sort of one of these guys who liked shooting, um, shooting at the range or skeet shooting. shooting. And so I was doing those things and, and just really fell in love uh, with the AR uh, platform, platform, I had early Colt, uh, which I wanted uh, flat top uppers for. Nobody made such an animal. And so he, he got into it. And as an engineer, I think he was attracted to the sort of engineering challenge of um, guns. He tells a kind of folksy story about like starting in his garage, right? Yeah. And uh, I talked to a guy into building 100 for me. I only needed four. So set up a website to sell the other 96, and uh, that's how that's how the company started. Uh, we sold those first products in 2001. But even yeah, it started off with a military contract supplying the military with a, one part for one of their rifles and just kept on growing from there and eventually started introducing his own line of weapons. Cheeky marketing sort of became baked into Daniel Defense as it got bigger and bigger. And I'm wondering if you can explain that with some examples. Like, what does an ad for a Daniel Defense weapon look like, and how does it compare to an ad for, I don't know, another weapon? Yeah, you know, so their ads, I mean, they're different than you might see from a, well, they're definitely different than you would see from like a hunting rifle sort of ad, you know, where they have the deer and the guy out in the woods and, you know, sort of sitting in a tree stand. Um, theirs is more more aggressive, you know, this, um, there's a, a, a sort of a twinge of um, religiosity to it as well. Um, the sort of, uh, there's a bit an interesting sort of crossover with, you know, guns and Christianity, sort of hardcore, like this belief of protecting your family. And, you know, this is sort of one of those God-given rights to arm yourself. Our products are on the front edge of protecting our freedom. The Second Amendment was, I believe, put in place. So it is truly the muscle behind the First Amendment. A lot of children with guns in their ads. Within the culture, it doesn't look as strange. Outside, yes, it looks really bizarre. It's like, or a week before the Uvalde shooting, right? They had that online social media ad where they, there's a you know a toddler sitting crisscross applesauce on the floor with a, a rifle on his lap, and it's clearly unloaded. Um, and there's a, a finger pointing at him, and it, and there's a proverb quoted above him, sort of saying, you know, teach him well now, and you know you won't have to teach him later which reads very bizarrely to outside the, the gun culture. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of stressing on freedom, too. You know, I think one of their, their taglines was manufacturing freedom, right? And this idea that the gun industry and guns are constantly under threat and, you know, there's no bigger way to show that you support America and, and freedom than, you know, owning one of these guns. That's a really important sort of uh, marketing tactic to sort of moving these. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important what you're saying about the separate culture where, you know, the the companies kind of created or worked within a culture that would seem bizarre to someone outside of it, but inside of it, like, has makes complete sense. And so it's it's part of what's strange after a shooting like this. 
Yeah, it's completely jarring um, and even offensive in some ways, right? I mean, when the outcome is murdered kids and then in their marketing, they have young kids and you're like, well, geez, what the heck is going on here? You know, there's and there's a backlash to it. And, I, you know, and there's folks even within the gun industry, you know, who I talked to some on the record, some off the record, who are uncomfortable about this, this sort of shift within the industry that it's going too far in trying to sell its weapons in, in its marketing, especially when you have these horrible outcomes um, later on. Yeah. One gun critic said Daniel Defense is a perfect illustration of the growing extremism in the gun industry. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah. You know, the, the rifles that they sell, and even the pistols, I mean, the things that they call pistols, which are, I mean, they're technically pistols. They, to the ordinary eye, do not look like pistols, and they look like just smaller semi-automatic military rifles. And you know, the couch commando uh, industry of, you know, making these folks who sort of want to play act soldier and want to have this real aggressive, you know, it's like the guy who drives the big muscle truck with the big muffler and the, you know, Calvin pissing on the Ford, you know, logo. It's tough when you're selling that imagery. It's like the Marlboro man, right? He's a tough, rugged guy and this is what you do. That's And what you do if you're tough and rugged is you get this really aggressive rifle and it's, you know, quite frankly, probably what attracts a lot of these uh, mass shooters to using it, too. They're angry, disaffected. Let's get the most macho thing out there. How much of this marketing is about Marty Daniel, the owner of Daniel Defense, the creator, the founder? And how much of it is just about the industry changing? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the chicken and egg. You know, is Marty Daniel you know, pushing this or is he sort of shaping his image to go along with, you know, what is in demand. Um, you know, to folks who know him, he's even known within a sort of loud and industry is, is sort of a bombastic figure, sort of loud and aggressive with his, you know, sort of sales pitch. And, you know, he, he sort of really enjoys the sort of um, position of gun as sort of a you know, this sort of totem in the culture wars. Um, and so he, he enjoys that role, playing that role, playing up the showmanship of it. And, and sort of pushing the envelope, perhaps, sometimes with his marketing. I'm not sure, you know, was he like that when he was selling overhead doors and fireplaces? I don't know. Um, but it hmm. fits really, really well if when you are selling something like a semi-automatic rifle. Are there other ways, other than marketing, that you see Daniel Defense as kind of an interesting illustration of bigger trends in the firearm industry? Like you mentioned, this company is headquartered in Georgia, which is where Marty Daniel lives. But, you know, it, for many years, the South was not the cradle of gun manufacturing in the United States. Is that changing too? Yeah, that, that definitely is changing. You know, the sort of cradle of American gun making for a really long time was um, the Northeast in, um, in and around Springfield, Massachusetts. I thought it was interesting that Smith & Wesson, or, you know, which even if you know nothing about guns, that name sort of means something. You know, it's a publicly traded company. It's huge. Um, they've been based forever in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. And they announced late last year that they are moving operations to Tennessee. In part, they probably blamed the gun restrictions to Massachusetts. And they said, you know, Tennessee is much friendlier to, to the Second Amendment. And that is par partly true, but also, you know, it's an economic development issue, you know. They were lured there by the state, you know, and they'll face lower taxes, you know. But it's, it's tougher for the gun manufacturers who are still located in these areas as guns are, you know, more and more a cultural war issue. 
after the Parkland shooting, you know, that horrible shooting in Florida, um, school shooting, the shooter used a Smith and Wesson um, AR-15 style weapon. And there were protests outside of the Springfield, Massachusetts headquarters of Smith and Wesson, right? I mean, it's a huge manufacturer that Springfield, Mass is not like a prosperous town. These jobs were good paying, solid jobs, but they were students and other people who were just out there protesting, angry. Um, Smith & Wesson's probably not going to face protests like that when they move to Tennessee. It's interesting listening to you because I get a sense that we're in the middle of this bifurcation that becomes clear when you look at a manufacturer like Daniel Defense, where everyone knows about the cultural bifurcation and to some extent the physical bifurcation in the country. It becomes sort of crystallized when you look at what's happening in the gun industry. Yeah, no, certainly. You know, we talk about blue states and red states and, you know, folks are self-sorting themselves into neighborhoods where they're like-minded neighbors, you know, um, along pol- political lines. And, and guns are very much a political issue. Um, there are, you know, it's not like Democrats don't own guns um, and there aren't even aggressive, you know, Second Amendment Democrats. Um, but it has become very much a sort of uh, symbol on the right. When right-wingers want to intimidate folks in public, you know, the open carry, the, the, the AR-15 slung over the shoulder is the image that you, is projected out there. And there's a reason for that, because that weapon's incredibly uh, sort of aggressive. And so you have these gun manufacturers then sort of self-sorting and choosing to relocate. And in some ways, these issues get harder to solve when we are sort of divided across geography like that. We'll be right back. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Has the owner of Daniel Defense, Marty Daniel, has he ever shown support for greater gun control measures? <laughs> yeah, once he didn't. <laughs> his customers did not appreciate it. Um, what happened? One thing is, you know, there's just try and tell these stories and you got to be like, well, what, now which mass shooting was this? Um, which is just such a bizarre way to have to think about these things, right? So uh, the 20, 2017 Sutherland Springs, Texas shooting. And, that, and so not to get confused with, you know, a school shooting, this was a church shooting um, where a guy was upset with the church and just, you know, off, you know sort of off his rocker and um, shot up a church and, and killed um, a whole bunch of people. Um, but he never should have actually been able to buy the weapons he was he bought. Um, and now, so in 2018, um, a bill sponsored by Republicans who have are sort of low to tighten gun control measures, they supported a bill to um, require and sort of encourage more information to be fed into the background check system so that things like this would be caught. And Marty Daniel came out and supported that, you know, hey, let's keep folks who shouldn't have guns from getting guns. You know, this is part of the law. And there was a huge blowback. 
you know, his customers were like, you know, this is a Trojan horse. I mean, everything's a Trojan horse to absolutists on the, on the gun rights issue. You know, any sort of giving an inch, you know, oh my God, they're going to come for your guns next. And it's really a very tough negotiating position. So they came at him and he, he backtracked. He said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't really think this through. I, I shouldn't support this bill. And he didn't support it. You know, notably, though, the Republican and Democrats passed this bill and President Trump signed it. It was the one time that I saw where, you know, Marty Daniels sort of didn't follow the script that we so often see the gun industry follow. And you sort of learn quickly what I've heard from others is that, you know, you don't step out of line. You know, in the gun industry, you have to sort of follow the line that all gun control measures are bad. There's a strange incentive structure for gun manufacturers that you've nodded to. Like after a mass shooting, sales of firearms go up. Marty Daniel actually told Forbes that the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary drove a lot of sales, which is a really ugly fact. And, you know, the stock price of Smith & Wesson rose 8% in the days following the shooting in Uvalde. Do we have a good idea of how these kinds of incentives influence company decision-making? So much of the of the gun industry's sales and marketing is driven on fear. Fear uh, that someone's going to break into your house. Fear that, you know, you're going to get um, accosted by a rapist. Fear that the feds are going to come and take your guns. There's going to be more gun control measures. And so, yeah, there's this perverse um, effect of these mass shootings where they drive stock prices, they drive sales, people get freaked out. You know, it, there's an inverse to that too, which is sort of fascinating, is that when Hillary Clinton lost unexpectedly right to, to President Trump. There was a, the gun industry had been ramping up production, expecting uh, Hillary Clinton to win and expecting gun control to be a main problem and feature of the debate. And that didn't happen. And uh, the so-called Trump slump hit and these gun manufacturers really suffered. Some even went bankrupt because fear drives sales and there was no longer fear of gun control with a Republican in the White House. Yeah. I mean, you've said yourself a responsible gun owner might look at the fact that Daniel Defense manufactured a weapon used in mass shootings and say, listen, this isn't the company's fault. It makes a tool that can be used responsibly or irresponsibly. Do you see it differently? Like, how is Daniel Defense different from, say, Budweiser selling someone beer and then they crash their car? That's an argument you hear a lot from two-way supporters, right? Second Amendment supporters. Um, you know, you don't hear them doing anything but about the, that other stuff, you know, and but we do, right? I mean, it's sort of a, it's like, well, actually, right, Budweiser took a lot of heat for drunk driving and it now runs ads, you know, encouraging you to, you know, designate a driver, right? To, you know, there's been a lot of pushback and, you know, lawsuits against bartenders for over-serving people. And for automobiles, you know, we have a licensure system, a insurance system. Shortly after the assault weapons ban was repealed, Congress also passed basically an immunity shield, a liability shield for gun makers so that people can't sue for some of these sort of overreaches and stuff like that. So imagine if like, you know, Ford or GM or Honda had that too, right? Where you couldn't sue when the car is being used repeatedly in bad ways. But we have all these, we have seatbelts, we have airbags, we've done all these things to try and make these things safer. And there is nothing to make guns safer. And if anything, we are trying to make guns riskier and more lethal. And that's the selling point. The mass shooting at Sandy Hook opened the door to some kind of accountability for some companies because families sued the Remington Company, which made the gun that was used in the massacre. And this lawsuit created a kind of blueprint for suing other gun makers. It was all based on state law because there's the federal protection that you alluded to there. 
Is there any evidence that Daniel Defense is thinking about that as a potential liability? No, I, no, no sense that necessarily Daniel Defense is thinking about that at the moment. These lawsuits do get filed after shootings. We, and what it was notable at the Sandy Hook one against against Bushmaster and Remington, um, the maker of the rifle used there, was how far it did progress. But notably, it it was settled right um, last year for like I think seventy three million dollars. So they didn't win. Right. They didn't actually have the judges decide in their favor. And the gun industry is very quick to point out that this was settled by the insurers, right? The insurance companies of the gun manufacturers settled this. And so they are not taking this as any sort of message. But it's really interesting to think about if they did not have this liability shield. I mean, they said it was for when they passed it, right? Oh, because it's nuisance lawsuits. But there's some real liability here, right? When you market your weapon in such a way and, you know, just let it out into the wild and then something happens, you know, without that shield, I think they'd be in a huge bunch of trouble. It's funny because I kind of have the sense that the financial power of the gun industry and its lobby is weakening. Like because of that lawsuit that was settled with Remington or the insurers of Remington, because the NRA filed for bankruptcy after being sued by the New York State Attorney General. But does the evidence show that, that the power of the gun industry is changing or weakening in any way? I, I think it's changing, right? Yeah, you're right. You know, the NRA um, has been hobbled by its bankruptcy and Wayne LaPierre is sort of being criticized for his leadership style. Um, you know, I think it's notable, though, that like, you know, Mike Bloomberg's um, Every Town for Gun Safety is also a major, major contributor on the other side. And, you know, the gun issue is not just a, um, you know, everyone wants to blame the NRA. It's not just a, a political money issue. It's a cultural issue, right? It, it's an identity issue for a lot of folks, especially on the right. It is now sort of a cultural issue where the money almost doesn't matter in some ways. This is part and parcel of your identity. It's interesting how you say it's kind of self-perpetuating at this point. And I feel like that's really underlined by the fact that if you look at Marty Daniel, who runs Daniel Defense, he's given money politically, but he's only given money to Republicans. And in some ways, I feel like that's important because it it underlines the cultural thing. It's saying, like, we don't need to spread this around. We just need this one group on our side. It's It mirrors the sort of cultural separation you talked about in political separation as well. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's sort of interesting, like, you know, there's this sort of goofy political ads you see of uh, politicians, you know, running, uh, shooting firearms, right? It's become sort of a thing, right? But Democrats, again, they own guns too, right? Um, but when those politicians use guns in ads, it is generally the single shot rifle or something with a regular looking handgun. Um, where the conservative sort of more right-wing politician is going to be using the AR-15 and it's real aggressive and in your face. And so even how we think about guns is so split along those political lines. And the AR-15 is not, it's not a democratic gun, I guess, in some ways, right? It's become such a totem and such a symbol of the right that that's what you think of and you associate it with. And I, I do think the focus and the one way that this debate can sort of change in interesting ways is if we single out and think about the assault rifle is separate from and different from the hunting rifle or the home protection, you know, handgun. 
Yeah. I mean, one one former gun industry executive you spoke to compared the gun industry to the opioid industry. And I thought that was an interesting comparison, but I wondered what you made of it. Because it, st- it struck me that there are also important differences between how we think about the drug industry and how we think about guns. The opioid industry, right, they went from, has been well chronicled now, you know, they went from making this miracle drug that uh, was hailed and uh, is a breakthrough for treating, you know, the pain of cancer patients and stuff. And they got a little heavy in their marketing, right? And they wanted to find a bigger market for their for their product. And they started pushing it out to perhaps places they shouldn't, into pain clinics and, you know, just these script mills. And it became a huge issue that fed this other broader epidemic of, of heroin and addiction. But it started with a very legitimate company, you know, selling something that was very legal and um, well thought of and just going too far. A difference that I thought about when it came to opioids versus guns was like, for instance, it took us so long to even collect data on gun deaths. Like that was explicitly basically forbidden from the 90s because it was seen as somehow anti-gun to collect information about gun deaths. But of course, the CDC has always kept records on opioid deaths. And so to me, that was a place where you could see at least some broad agreement between people about like, oh, we need to keep track of this. We need to look at this because it's important. But then also in the opioid industry, you have a family like the Sacklers, who many blame for spreading opioids around the country. But the Sacklers wanted to be part of the broader culture. They still do. They were putting their names on museums and, you know, all over the country, including very blue places. And those things seem important to me because they create a place where you can enter and put pressure in if you are government, if you're working with someone who actually wants to be part of your larger project, you can, you know, come in with regulations because you're doing something together. But what I see when you talk to me about the gun industry is a group that's really separating itself intentionally, physically, and sort of mentally, too, in terms of culture. Yeah, that's a great point. Marty Daniel and Daniel Defense have a a sign over the scoreboard of the local football stadium, right? You know, right on the scoreboard. And it's hard to imagine how that would play in uh, New York State, right? You know, a place or you know, a place that's typically more liberal um, and a little more wary of guns. Yeah, and so how do you apply that social pressure? The Sacklers, yeah, of course, want acceptance, broader acceptance. And these gun manufacturers, um, they don't need, right, they can totally subsist in their own sort of subcultures um, out there. And they, you're exactly right, it does make it more difficult to uh, come to a solution on this. Todd Frankel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about all this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Todd Frankel is an enterprise reporter at The Washington Post's financial desk. And that's the show. Quick note before I get off the line here. We had an error in yesterday's show. I mixed up my soccer clubs. But you know what was kind of great? A listener reached out on Twitter, told me what I got wrong, and we were able to correct it. So what's in your feed now? That should be right. But anyway... If you've got feedback on the show, want to correct something, just find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. 
What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We're getting a lot of help these days from Sam Kim and Anna Rubinova. We're led by Joanne Levine and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. 